Well, Father, we are grateful that we can come and listen to your word, listen to your revelation. And Father, we thank you for the Gospel of Luke and how he so faithfully recorded the life of Jesus so that we can marvel at who he is and what he has done. And Father, as we uh, talk about this all-important topic of faith and see the faith of the centurion, I pray that our own faith will be challenged and, and encouraged so that we may have a commendable faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 2015, Oprah Winfrey uh, did a seven-part mini-series called Belief. She was inspired by Richard Attenborough's BBC documentary, Planet Earth. Have you guys ever seen that? Just a beautiful documentary all about the wonders of this planet. And, and she, died, she decided that she wanted to do a spiritual counterpart, her, she called it her, her planet belief. And this is what a promotional blurb said. A dervish whirling in a brilliant sea of white. A man and his grandson walking along the coast of northern Australia. A scientist peering at a star-drenched sky through one of the planet's most powerful telescopes. None of them have ever met, but they all have one thing in common. A deep faith in something bigger than themselves. Belief will tell their stories and others as it explores mankind's primal search for meaning. And so in this mini-series, you have stories of Hindus, uh, uh, some of the animistic religions of Africa, Muslims, evangelical Christians, and even atheists tell their story about belief. And so I was kind of curious to find out, so what exactly does Oprah mean by belief? And this is what she said about belief and faith. She said, I think the ability to have a faith in life and breath and presence that is so strong that you trust this moment and the next moment and the next moment and then the next moment, there is a way of living that allows you to be fully present in this moment. That, I think, is faith, faith in this very moment. Now, I had to read that about 10 times before I, I think I figured out what she meant. But what's interesting is it's not faith in a person, right? It's not necessarily faith in God, it's almost faith in a, in a moment. That if you have faith, that's the most important thing, right? For those of you who watched Monday Night Football this past week, I mean, it was kind of a touching experience to see football players all gathering to pray. Uh, it was interesting that night, uh, the NFL released a tweet that our thoughts are with Damar Hamlin, and then they changed it to... We are praying for Damar Hamlin, right? It, it, it was actually a good thing that they want to pray. And there is almost this recognition that you need to have faith. But the thing is, not all faith is equal. What differentiates faith is the object of faith, right? And the quality of faith. And, and that is really the teachings of Jesus in Luke chapter 7, 1 through 10. We see that there is a commendable faith in the life of the centurion. Turn with me if you haven't already. Luke chapter 7. This is right after the Sermon on the Plain, where he talks to his disciples and prepares them for a ministry without him. He concludes 
with a calling to having this unshakable faith where you build your life on the foundation of Jesus' teaching. And then he says this, or this is what Luke records. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now the centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friend, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is a statement about faith, isn't it? And the punchline, not in Israel have I found such faith. He's basically saying that not all, not all faith is created equal, right? And we'll talk more about that. It's not enough to say you have faith. It's not enough to say you have faith in faith or even that you have faith in Christ. Not all faith is commendable. It doesn't matter what I think about your faith. It doesn't matter what Oprah thinks about your faith. The question is, what does Jesus think about your faith? Would he commend your faith? And in this passage, you see two elements of commendable faith that are part of our outline. One, that you see that a commendable faith is a humble faith. And two, a commendable faith is a Christ-centered faith. So we're going to go through the humble faith, Christ-centered faith, and then the commendation of faith. And, and this is the question I have for you. Would Jesus commend your faith? So let's look at the, the first point. We're going to start in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people. This is a reference to the Sermon on the Plain, right? A wonderful exposition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ that concludes with the two foundations, right? You need to build your house on the rock. It's not enough to just hear this teaching, you do the teaching, right? It's not enough to call Jesus Lord, Lord, if you don't do what he, what he says. So after he finishes these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, he goes to Capernaum, which is a, a city on the northwest coast of Galilee, which was a, a very important uh, garrison town, and you had a lot of Roman soldiers that were stationed there. And where there's Roman soldiers, there were officers. And in this case, you have a centurion. Now, centurion, sentry, you think about 100, right? He's a mid-level officer, uh, commands roughly 100 people. And he was a part of the Roman army, 
which meant that he was not a Jew. That doesn't mean that he was a Roman. Most of the soldiers in Palestine at that time were from Libya or Syria, but we know that he was, one, a Roman citizen, but he wasn't a Jew. But this centurion had something different about him. Look at verse 2. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, what's really striking about this is you could see why Luke was drawn to this particular story about Jesus, right? Remember, Luke, he is a Gentile, writing a gospel for Gentiles. And Gentiles have been told all their lives that as non-Jews, you're not part of God's chosen people. And yet here we have a, a Gentile who seems to get it. Now, this is a Roman centurion. He was probably a mid-level officer, kind of like a captain in the army. Commanded roughly 100 men. And one of his servants is sick to the point of death. We learn from other accounts that he, he was paralyzed. You can imagine maybe spinal meningitis with this fever, aches and pains, losing movement. I mean, this was a, a dire situation. And this centurion had heard about Jesus. No, he never mentions that he saw him. He merely heard about him. Again, remember the purpose of Luke? He's writing to people so that they might hear about Jesus. And that is enough to cause him to act. And what he does is he sends the elders of the people, these Jewish elders, these Jewish leaders. And this is what's really fascinating. The normal disposition that the Jews had towards their, towards their Roman occupiers is that they are a blight and a plague on this country. We should be ruling Palestine. We should be in charge. And as long as this pagan scum is running the show, we'll never return to the golden age of David. And yet there's something about this Roman centurion that has endeared himself to the people of the city. In fact, they are representing him and they're telling Jesus, this is not the centurion's words, these are the, the Jewish leader's words, that he is a worthy man. He loves our nation. In fact, he has helped us build our synagogue. I actually looked it up. Centurions were actually really well paid. It's estimated that they would make anywhere between a quarter million to a million dollars a year. Right? Not bad. And how did he spend his money? He was probably the chief benefactor to make sure that the Jews could build a synagogue. And incidentally, this synagogue makes a cameo appearance earlier in, in Luke where Jesus casts out a demon in that synagogue. So Jesus knows the place. The centurion obviously had heard about him. 
they clearly thought that he was a, a worthy man. This would be like the Jews in a concentration camp identifying a Nazi officer and recognizing that this guy actually cares about us. They, they see past the uniform to the heart, and they see that there is a, a different spirit. Now, as we keep on reading in Luke and make our way to Acts, which is Luke part 2, we see that one of the major themes that we have in that uh, sequel to this gospel is the inclusion of the Gentiles. For a century, it, it was always taught that, you know, the Gentiles will give you some sort of cooties, right? You, you stay away from them. One of the reasons why they had all those food laws where you don't eat bacon, well, that's what the, that's what the Gentiles would eat. And so you don't dine with them, you don't associate with them. If they, if they want to join your tribe, they need to do certain things, like be circumcised. But still, there were many of these Gentiles who were really curious about this monotheistic religion with, that majored in ethics and taught about the living God. And so you have this category of Gentiles called God-fears who, who would actually go into the synagogue, listen to the teaching, were drawn to it, but... But the whole element of circumcision and that whole circumcision business was enough to keep them from full conversion, right? I see some of the guys go, yeah, but it's true. That is likely where this guy is. And, and in this case, he has a young servant, he's later used as boy, that, that he had a high regard for. And this is where you see that he, he's almost, he's a tender soul. You see, when you were in the Roman legion, you were not to have a family for the two decades you were there. Too many entanglements. And so he would have a servant who he refers to as his child or his boy uh, in the Greek later on. And he had a high regard for him. He may have regarded him as his son, and he was deeply distressed. And so here, the most powerful man in Capernaum, is brought to a desperate situation. He wants Jesus to come and do something about this servant who he cares deeply about. And so they go and they pursue Jesus. And Jesus, being the merciful man that he is, obliges. He obliges. And as he's making his way to the home, it's like the centurion has some second thoughts. Now that it's actually happening, um, we read in verse 6, Jesus went with them when, when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. He wasn't being rude. He recognized that Jesus was a high, holy man. He did not want to jeopardize Jesus' ministry. Did you know that Jesus never actually dined in the house of a Gentile? He was sinners and tax collectors, but not with Gentiles who would not cross that line. And the centurion said, I totally respect that. I know enough about your religion to know that this would somehow defile you. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. In fact, I'm not even worthy to, to talk to you. All this business about him being a worthy man, that's the opinion of the Jews. That's not his opinion of himself. 
right? And this is a, a striking contrast from how many higher-ups view themselves. I can't help but notice the parallels between this sermon or this story and Naaman. Do you guys remember Naaman? Naaman was a higher-up general in the Syrian army who was struck with leprosy, which is like the worst disease on earth. And he heard from one of his servant girls who was taken from Palestine that there is a great prophet in Israel who might be able to help you. And so he makes the journey to see the prophet Elisha, sends word to bring Elisha out. And Elisha basically communicates with the servant and says, just tell Naaman, right, not telling him in person, just tell Naaman, dunk in the Jordan River and you'll be fine. And this is what uh, Naaman says, 2 Kings 5.11. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Now, he did humble himself, and he did go, but he kind of expected people to make a fuss about him, right? I don't know if you know about this, Elisha, but I'm kind of a big deal But that's not the heart of the centurion. He says, I totally respect you. You go ahead. Stay there. Just say the word. We'll talk about the significance of that later. But he said, I'm not a worthy man. I'm not worthy. Now, from all of this, you see that this centurion had a, a real humility about him. He had a real humility about him. And the more I've thought about this, I'm just more convinced that humility is the seed form of faith. You ever thought about that? Humility is the seed form of faith. And there's seven ways that he shows his humility. Number one, he humbled himself by learning from the Jews. He did not come in with some sort of imperial arrogance and, and thinking, because we conquered the world, let me show you a little bit about how to live. He learned from the Jews. Two, he humbled himself through his generosity. He was given wealth, and what did he do with his wealth? Well, he sought to bless others. He sought to fund the synagogue of the Jews. Generous people believe that their time and their money is at other people's disposals. They, they, live to, they want to make other people happy and, and bless them. Thirdly, he was humbled by accepting the revelation of Jesus. He did not demand that Jesus do signs in front of him, like many of the Jews, right? It was enough that he heard about Jesus. He just had to hear about revelation, and that was enough for him to accept it. A lot of people who lose their faith do so because of a proud heart, where they demand signs, demand that he does this for me or this for me, but that was not the state of the, this Gentile centurion. Fourth, his, his centurion showed itself, his, I'm sorry, his, uh, his humility showed itself in just his friendship. Proud people don't have close friends. To have close friends means that there's a give and take. There's a willingness to be inconvenienced. There's a willingness to, to work things out. There's willingness to seek their best at your own expense. He had waves of friends who are really to serve him, not because... They feared him, but because they had a deep respect for him. If you want to be liked by people, here's a tip. If you want people to like you, be humble. 
If you want people not to like you, be proud. Humble people have friends. Fifthly, his humility showed itself in his care of his servant. It'd be really easy for him to see his servant as beneath him. I'm up here, you're down here, I can always get another slave. But clearly this person was distressed, and, and he was willing to humble himself before a peasant prophet for the sake of his servant. He wasn't too proud to beg. Six, his humility showed itself in his deference to Jesus' reputation. He did not want Jesus to be scandalized. He did not want Jesus to be diminished in the eyes of other people. And sixth, seventh, his humility showed itself in his regard for himself. I'm not worthy to even be in your presence. I am not worthy. All this to say the number one predictor of commendable faith, and I say this to a lot of you young people who are kind of wondering, I don't feel like I've been zapped by Jesus yet. I don't feel like I've crossed over. Work on humility and you will not be far from the kingdom. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, I want to qualify this, okay? There's two things that we can confuse for humility. One, humility is not agreeableness. Agreeableness is when you have an inclination to say yes and agree with everybody. Yeah, there have been times where I thought, man, that guy is on the cusp of conversion because he's being so agreeable, he's agreeing with everything that I say, but what's really motivating that person is a fear of man and wanting to please other people and get people to like him, right? And if somebody else were to give a counter message, the Mormon missionary would say, they're about to become Mormons, I just know it, because they're agreeable, right? That is not the same thing as humility. That's really charming people, so that you can win their approval for your own ends. Secondly, humility is not to be confused with uh, uncertainty. We can't really know what the Bible says. We can't really know which God is true. Those are actually very arrogant statements, right? Everybody else who believes that God is true and the Bible is true, well, they're all arrogant. Right? That's kind of a blanket judgment. I mean, humility is not uncertainty. Believing Jesus at his word is not arrogant. It's humbling yourself before his teaching. I mean, true, true humility has a sense of dependence and deference. You agree with Abraham when he says in Genesis 18, 27, we are nothing but dust and ashes. We are congealed dirt. Right? God breathed in to dirt made us. Don't believe me? What happens when our light breath leaves? We become dirt once again. Now, in contrast, you have the narcissist, right, who kind of imagines that God is their homeboy or their peer. Uh, they believe that God should be, count himself very fortunate to receive their worship, and this church should be, well, make a fuss over me, because look at what they're getting. But narcissists lose their faith quite easily because it's really about the worship of themselves. And when they sense that the, the world will not revolve around them or God will not do what they believe is in their best interest, they lose their faith. And you can understand because that God doesn't actually exist. The only God that exists is a God of all glory who can do whatever he wants when he wants 
who demands absolute obedience, gives grace, but he understands that he's a force and everyone reckons with him. If you don't have that high view of God, and even that high view of of Christ, you're missing something. If you use religion as a way to boast in yourself and, and, and enhance your spiritual bona fides, and you want to be known as a spiritual person, you're missing the point. The only person we can boast in is in the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 27. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And this is how you can tell somebody has this idea of boasting in themselves. If I were to tell you that you are a wretched sinner who deserves to go to hell, are you convinced of that in your soul? Well, I'm not as bad as these people, right? The, the people who get offended by passages like Romans 3, 10 through 13, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. If you don't believe that passage applies to you, there's a problem. Doesn't Turin would have embraced it. Again, the number one predictor of faith, true commendable faith, is humility. If somebody reads that and says, and that's not the half of it, they're not far from the kingdom. They're not far from the kingdom. But when you intersect this humility of faith with the message and person of Jesus, you will have a transformation. And that's exactly what happens. We see a Christ-centered faith. And so Jesus is coming towards that house. He sends out friends to stop Jesus from coming all the way into the house. And he says this, But say the word and let my servant be healed. Now, we're used to all the stories of Jesus with the long-distance miracles, right? Now, it's part of our culture. We see it. We know there are stories like this in John. There's a, another story uh, that's really a retelling of this story in Matthew. We, we know that Jesus can do long-distance miracles. It's not a problem for him. But this was revolutionary at that time. Only the holiest of men and prophets had the ability to do a long-distance miracle. So this by itself would be amazing. But then the centurion explains how he reasoned himself into this. Verse 8. For I too am a man set under authority. With soldiers under me, I say, come. Say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes, and, do, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, he understood that he's part of this Roman military system. Where he has been empowered by the emperor of Rome, and Rome with its imperial majesty, to give orders to other people, 
so that when they obey him, they are obeying Rome. He is the recipient of delegated authority from the most powerful empire the world had ever known to that point. And so if that is true of him, then Jesus, he has imperial majesty given to him by God so that when he says something and commands something, the God of the universe will make it so. Just say the word, Jesus. Just say the word. He had a a Christ-centered faith. He had a high view of Jesus Christ. He didn't have to do any magic tricks. He didn't have to say, okay, everybody close your eyes and count to ten and then whip out some potion to heal him. He just had to command it, and it was so because of who he was and how he related to God. And then we see the commendation of faith. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now that term, marvel, is something we see quite a bit. They were marveling at his teaching. They marveled at Jesus. But here, Jesus is not the object of the marveling, is he? He's the one doing the marveling, and he is marveling at the centurion. Right, Scott, you're a math teacher. Imagine you were to ask one of your students, anybody know the value of pi? And they do, somebody raises their hand and gives you the value of pi to the hundredth digit. Right? After seven, you're just going, I guess he knows what he's talking about. Right? You'd marvel at that. Where did this come from? And I, I can just imagine the body language of Jesus when he hears this and how his face would go, wow, this is a guy who gets it. And he says this, I tell you, he's telling everybody who's around him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. He differentiates the faith of the centurion with what he's been seeing in Israel. And this points to a building message in the Gospel of Luke that goes on into Acts that eventually the Messiah's own people The people of Israel, his kin, his brothers and sisters, who are also descendants of Abraham, they will turn against him, they will crucify him, they will reject him, and it will be the Gentiles who will come to faith. That is the the trajectory that is happening. So in this commendation of the Gentile faith of the centurion, you see an indictment of the Jews. Who don't get it. In fact, in the parallel passage to this in Matthew, uh, you see this, this, this dig is elaborated. Seven, uh, Matthew chapter, I think it's 7, verse 11 through 12, says this. I think it's 8, 11 through 12, sorry. 
I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is hardcore. He's making reference to a passage in Isaiah. I'll read you the passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. This is when there is a promised feast to encourage a people about to be exiled, that all will be well in the future. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. They're all looking forward to this banquet when all will be well. The great patriarchs will be there. People from the east and the west will be gathered into the sacred space where they will enjoy this great bounty and blessing from the Lord. And when Jesus talks about this, he he talks about how the Gentiles are going to be crashing this party. What are they doing here? You think about how fundamentalist is Muslims look at Christians and look at people in the West, right? We're filthy pagan scum, servants of the great Satan. What are they doing here? And yet, Jesus makes it very clear that those people who believe like this Gentile centurion, they will be there, but you won't be. Verse 11, Matthew 8. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that festival, that banquet in the presence of the Lord is a place of light and warmth, right? So these outsiders become insiders. And the insiders become outsiders. And they they are so far outside and so far removed from this banquet that they can't even see the light anymore. They are in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you look at that phrase, gnashing of teeth. Any dentist will tell you that one of the worst things you can get is TMJ, right? When your jaw freezes up. And it's usually caused by stress or anger, right? And the idea of kind of grinding your teeth. These people are excluded, and and these are not tears of just regret, but they are an expression of anger, cursing, eternal rage. Can you imagine? Because they did not have commendable faith. And to prove his point, he said the word. We don't read it. Maybe he thought it, prayed it. But verse 10, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. No magic tricks, no medicine, no surgery, just said the word. 
And the servant who is on the brink of death, boom, he's fine. Showing that everything that the centurion believed was true. Can you imagine? The centurion actually modified Jesus' miracle. You don't need to come in the presence. You don't need to lay hands. Just say the word. And Jesus did. Recognized his faith. You get it. So commendable faith really has two elements, right? There's a humility. And when that humility intersects with a high view of Jesus, that he is the Lord, he can do whatever he wants, I'm going to believe what he says, I'm going to believe who he is. When those two things intersect, you have a commendable faith. Now, not all faith in Christendom is commendable. In fact, there's some counterfeit faiths. One is indoctrination faith, right? These are people who can get the answers right. Perhaps you can answer a Bible quiz with the best of them. You went to Adventure Club or Awana, you know John 3.16 in five different languages, right? You are well-schooled, well and that's all good. I had indoctrination faith. I, I remember as a young kid, I saw a movie I should never have seen about somebody being possessed by a demon. Freaked me out. Talked to the only Christian I knew. Said, what can I do to not be demon-possessed? Because I'm making wooden crosses, hanging garlic. I know that's for vampires, but I'm do- working with what I got. <laughs> and she told me, if you become a Christian, you won't be possessed by a demon. I said, deal. What do I do? Do you believe that you are a sinner? Will help me not be possessed by a demon? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yes. Do you want Jesus to forgive you? Yes. Do you want Jesus to protect you from demons? Well, she didn't say that, but I'm thinking that. Pray this prayer, and I did. Boom, I'm demon-proof. Right? It's indoctrination faith. But James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe in shudder. You know, Satan has great theology. That's indoctrination. But that by itself doesn't require any humility, does it? Doesn't require any humility. You can even have a high view of Christ. But without the humble faith, that's just indoctrination faith. Then you have conformity faith. This is the fruit of strong Christian surroundings. Uh, Perhaps you grew up in a Christian family. The people you know and love are Christians. And for you not to be a Christian is to not to walk with the Lord, is to separate you from the people you love. There is a a social pressure to become a Christian. Or, Or perhaps you go away to college or you move to a new town and the people who love you the best are the Christians. And I've seen this many times, right? I think our church does a great job of this. We love, who, love the people who need it. We surround them, encourage them. And so you go along with it because that is you know, the kind of the social cost you have to pay. Sure, I'm a Christian. I hang around with Christians. And, and it's almost as if you become a Christian via osmosis. But the problem is when you are separated from that community, what happens to you? You ever seen it? You conform to whoever else. You compromise. 
It's not really meaningful because it was never true faith. Remember how I talked about how humility is not to be confused with agreeability? Conformity faith doesn't stand up to persecution, backs down during trials, is not motivated by a high view of Christ where they are willing to do whatever it takes to please and honor him. They're willing to be persecuted. Right? That is conformity faith. Another one would be mystical faith. You ask how somebody became a Christian and they'll give you a a testimony of a come-to-Jesus moment. I was watching the passion of Christ and I just started weeping. I went to a Carmen concert. We were talking about Carmen the other day. If you don't know who he is, well, you're missing out on some great Christian pop culture from the 90s. And I came forward. I just felt zapped by Jesus. But you know, I, I had a happy feelings watching U2. U2 concert at Arrowhead Stadium in 1992. Didn't do anything for me. Just led me to buy the album. You can have moments of euphoria when you watch a certain sports game. You can have a moving experience during a worship service. But we're not committed to a feeling. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in a person, right? And Jesus is not a myth. He's not an idea. He is a real person. And having faith in Jesus is, number one, having a high view of Jesus, that he is real, he walked the earth, died the death on the cross, and rose from the dead. Having faith in Jesus is that you realize that he is the most precious being in the universe. It is to believe that he is Lord. It is to have a faith in him that you're not the one who says, calls him Lord, Lord, and does not do what he says, but you recognize that since he is Lord... Since he is who he is, the coming king who will reign over all the earth, I will do what he says. I will humble myself before him. And if you are truly humble, you will humble yourself before Jesus. If you truly understand who Jesus is, that will lead you to to bow the knee. Humility and a high view of Christ are the critical elements of commendable faith. Now, when I use words like, you may not be a Christian, I'm not trying to throw cold water on you. It's, God is merciful. He is kind. He didn't send his son to earth to make it impossible for people to believe in him. Okay? But it is worth asking that question sometime, Right? You don't want to be the person who thinks he's a Christian or she's a Christian and then shows up before Jesus and he says, away from me, I never knew you, right? That's the worst faith on earth. I think it's worth asking, do you currently have a humble faith? Do you humble yourself before Jesus? Do you take orders from him?
Does that make sense? And if that's where you are, and I know many of you brothers and sisters, I have more confidence in your salvation than my own because I do see that in you. But it's not enough to talk about faith. Would Jesus commend your faith? Would he? Would he? Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and we offer ourselves for your examination. Second Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see if, if you are of the faith. And, and I pray that we will do that. And Lord, should we show ourselves not to be someone who's in possession of commendable faith, I pray that we will humble ourselves, that you will give us a higher view of Christ and that you will just change and transform us from that point on. For those of us who do see that, I pray that it'll lead to just a greater humility and dependence upon you. Lord, we thank you for the faith of the centurion that we don't have to become Jews or do these works to become Christians. We merely have to believe in your son, who he is and what he did. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.